0: And there were five men around the table that were too cool for school, all leaning back, you know, I don't know why I'm here. And one person in that group shared a a story about one person who had changed his life. And all of these men were leaning in, and some of them were even a little teary and things. And that one person made a difference in the way the rest of that session went because they could be seen, heard, felt in that time.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, I am excited to talk with another great innovator in the transformative education space. Today, we are going to be talking about the idea of extreme innovation um, as a positive disruptor and how we think about the concept of what is school and why does it matter. And joining us today is Nick Salmon um, at the Collaborative Learning Network. So Nick, welcome to Learning Unboxed.
0: Well, thank you so much, Annalise. It's great to see you again. We just got to spend some time together two months ago in Japan, and it's got to see each other in a month in Ohio. And so I'm really glad that we have this moment to reconnect in between.
1: Me too. I'm super excited about that. And to set a little bit of context um, for our listeners, a little bit about the Collaborative Learning Network and more specifically about Nick. Um, So Nick is the founder and president of the Collaborative Learning Network, but he is also a ninth generation educator focused on educational facility planning, professional development of educators, and design support for future flexible learning environments that cost less to design design. To build, own, and operate and maintain. And so that's a really, really intriguing innovation because education is all about spending lots of money all the time. So we're gonna dig in on that one. Um, he is also the world's first self-certified educational furniture whisper, capable of coaxing the greatest potential out of the unruliest of school furnishings. And if that doesn't scream innovator, I don't know what does. So, Nick, again, we're super happy to have you. And like you said, we, we, we met in Japan um, at the Haikuba Forum a couple of months ago, and it was an amazing opportunity to just really dig in and have a sense of the creativity that you sort of bring into the world of education, the way we think about things. So first and foremost, Nick, talk to us a little bit about why why this thing that you do, why, why dig in and innovate in some of these spaces? Where's this passion for you come from?
0: Well, I, I wake up every morning with the intention of having a positive impact on 1.6 billion young people in the world. And I used to think of that as a a desired future state. And now I'm feeling like I just haven't met all 1.6 billion of these young people that I'm going to impact. And so that really kind of drives me to help be a positive influence in in the world and in the lives of young people around me and that's done not always directly with the young people you know you have to work with the adults that are working with them or with the school leaders that are working with the other educators that are working with the young people so I'm trying to find as many different avenues for doing that and my you know you mentioned that I'm a ninth generation educator and my namesake was born in France in the year 1700 and was a school teacher. His son was as well, same name, and wrote a whole bunch of books about transforming education in 1773. Um, and um, what were innovations in 1773 are in some ways maybe still highly relevant today because he was talking about how to how to teach a language other than English um, to people in a new a, a new way, uh, less rote repetition and more context, more sense of connection and things. And so it's interesting to think that the various innovations that I've been a part of, actually the roots of them have been around for hundreds of years and maybe in some cases, thousands of years. If we dig back into... Well, a friend of ours, Derek Peterson, likes to say we should always weave together the wisdom of the ancients with our own lived experience, as well as the the best that science has to offer us. And if we can draw upon those three things, then maybe we're going to be able to do something pretty amazing. I try to do that along the way.
1: Yeah, I think that that's the thing that makes great educators who come to the space, however you want to define the space, they they bring a, a true inner sense of passion, right? And And that passion transcends so many components. And I think that when I step back and contemplate, because I get asked this question all the time as a founder, and you're also a founder, you know, there is something about people who start new things, right? And so I, that does not come without a tremendous amount of uh, risk-taking and a lot of aspiration and a lot of well-intended meaning. And there's a lot of process that we learn along the way. But I think that for endeavors that are successful... I would argue there's a there is a shared component of deep seated passion that plays into one's ability to sort of progress through the difficulty of starting new things and I I and I find personally that that happens even at the individual classroom level an individual teacher right who who goes on the journey to become an educator and then the first time they step into their classroom they 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 are part of that sort of sp- start up space, even though we never mm-hmm. define it that way and I think that's really interesting, right? Because when we step back and talk about all the things that don't work in the world of education, and if we set those aside and, and instead spend our time trying to dissect and pull apart all the things that are working and how we can we can take the great the greatness and then figure out how to take that to scale, in some cases, not not everything needs to scale, obviously, but there's this element in my mind that says we need to sort of step back and recognize that sort of um, extreme or aggressive innovator. And I think some of it comes to the willingness to start. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, well, and I guess uh, <clears throat> as you're sharing that, the images that came to mind are, because you said that, an educator goes into their classroom and is in this kind of startup mentality. I think two revolutionary things that we could be doing in education that cost nothing to do are first of all, that no teacher would work alone. They would always be in a pair or a triplet or a quad. And therefore, the startup mentality is now shared amongst a greater number of adults and then a greater number of young people. And then the other thing that is revolutionary and doesn't cost anything to do is to just change the way we use time and um you know some highly effective schools around the world have morning and afternoon <laughs> and that group of young people and that group of adults are engaged in, in integrated learning experiences this is something that Kavita Tana who you also met in in Japan is really excels at is how to draw that out of educators to find that natural integration of, of elements of learning that young people are experiencing. And and we are actually creating barriers to their learning because we want to isolate everything from each other and put them in separate silos and give them small chunks of time instead of longer bits of time. And I mean, and you mentioned the furniture thing as well. That's often another, another $0 thing is let's just rethink the resources that we have space and furniture, the technology and things. And there's all kinds of potential in all of those things. And a lot of times people are waiting around for, well, when we get the resources to do something, when we get a new building, when we get, you know, additional funding from our community to, to fund thing or a grant or something. But so much of this can be done for, for no, no dollars mm-hmm, at all. Just mm-hmm. a change of mindset.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you know, one of the ones that I always used to love and um, years ago, I I did a huge, huge project out in the American West. Um, And um, one of the things that was really interesting about this project is it um, it was all about taking STEM, high quality STEM education into places that were very rural, very remote, geographically isolated in many cases. And how can you ensure that places like that, who have a really, really hard time recruiting, um, teachers in particular, right? Um, so if the teacher's not of the community, then it's really, really difficult to get somebody to go there. Um, so yep. for example, the, the, the topics that are going to suffer the most are going to be math and science, right? Um, there's such a demand across um, so much of, in this case, in the American West for high quality math and science teachers that these places that need them the most can't compete. Nobody's going to go there. And even if they were willing to consider it, they're not going to fund at the same levels that the bigger communities are going to be able to fund it. So there's running at a constant deficit. And over and over again in talking with those communities around simple ways to address this issue, um, short of bringing, you know, actually finding somebody to bring in, was really all around reallocating of resources. And I heard over and over again, but I, we can't do it that way. We've always done it this, right? You know, it's like, yeah. okay, why are you a community of 3,000 people, you know, making two bus routes? Why, why would you run your buses twice every morning and twice every afternoon? You don't have that many people. Well, we've always right. we've always run it this way, but it's not a good use of resources or time, you know, back to your point. Right. So I, I think that um, that's one of those things that we bump up against all the time is this this lack of thinking about the way we could restructure something. And bells are the same way, right? I can't tell you how many times. Oh, no, no, no. We we have to have 42 and a half minutes. Well, what are we talking yeah. about? Why? Why? Who yeah. says so? Right. It's, it's an intriguing thing. So how do you coach folks around that, Nick?
0: Well, a lot of times it comes down to the communities that have limited resources are more open. Mm -hmm. So there must be another way because we're not seeing big grants. We're not seeing support from our, um, from our community to fund new initiatives or whatever. And so they're often the most accepting of there might, Mm -hmm. there might be another way. And so The three things that we typically do with communities are first to have educational visioning sessions. What are your current educational practices? Let's reflect on those. What are your desired future practices? And then what change elements emerge out of that? Sometimes that has facility components, impacts and things. That's the second thing that we focus on. And the third thing is the coaching of the educators and leaders into that desired future, whether facilities change or not. And um, again, I'm relying on the work that I collaborate with Kavita Tana on, because she is really skilled at um, spending enough time up front to get to know who we are working with, that they're willing to be vulnerable around where their their greatest aspirations lie, and it's possible to kind of rush into a coaching role too quickly and not give enough time to really understand, well, what's at the root of why you want to make this change. And, um, and yet we we see that when we model that, then then the educators are modeling that with the young people they're with. And one of our greatest successes is working with the the educator in Australia who had a multi-stage, multi-age classroom, years four and five. She had to cover the curriculum outcome, expectations for two different stages in, this, in a single year, four terms. And we worked with her to really build solid relationships with young people first. And it took her two or three weeks. And she was always nervous. I'm going to run out yeah. of time. I'm going to run out yeah. of time. Yeah, But sure enough, at the end of the third term, she said, we've covered everything we have a whole term for other exploration. It gave her great relief that she could have slowed down along the way and gone a little deeper, but it also gave her that freedom of, well, what else can we now do? And all that came by that upfront investment first on our part with her and then with she and her, her students. And a lot of people are not always in that place. And and so you have to find your way into that one of the great exercises that I like to start with is um, having people share their most powerful learning experiences. This is something that Dr. Josh Garcia has done out in Tacoma for 20 years maybe. And I found that people will tell you amazing things about their their powerful learning and almost none of them have any connection to school. It's that time with an uncle. It's the time alone it's the time when you wrecked a bicycle it's the time when you almost drowned or whatever it is there's this transformational experience that happened and no one ever really asked you that and just having a group of people come together and share that uh, we did this in mesa arizona and there were five men around the table that were too cool for school all leaning back you know i don't know why i'm here and one person in that group Shared a a story about one person who had changed his life, and all of these men were leaning in, and some of them were even a little teary and things. And that one person made a difference in the way the rest of that session went because they could be seen, heard, felt in that time. And the same thing is true for kids. You know, if we're not doing that, if we don't know that a kid's grandmother is in the hospital or that their dog died or that they something else has happened in their life. How can we possibly do any other bits of, of deep learning if we don't even understand foundationally who they are?
1: So I love that very much. And I love the way that you um, couched the, that piece of work, right? And, and it's, what I love about it is that it really sort of says to me, that we can we cannot get to a space of deep and extreme innovation if we don't first spend time sort of being deeply empathetic and deeply enmeshed with not just the the outcomes we're looking for but the people that are actually going to to drive the opportunity for us to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... You know, when I was teaching young designers a very long time ago, <laughs> in both in Ohio and in Montana, one of our, um, we, we, we transformed from having uh, a quarter system to a semester system. And, and the idea was, oh, well, this will uh, create greater depth because now young people will be able to work on a project for 15 weeks when they were working on them for 10. And what I found was the opposite happened because often what happened would be they would get one idea in their mind and they would make marginally better versions of it over the course of 15 weeks. And then there was this one, one catastrophic moment of failure rather than what I had been doing and I tried to reintroduce, which was, what if we do 10 or five, one or two week long projects Throughout the, throughout the term and, um, and have lots of opportunities to launch ideas and aspirations, see where they go. Sometimes they fall apart. We recover from that with feedback from our peers. We have another go at another element and maybe they add up to something bigger, but rather than trying to do a one thing for 10 weeks or one thing for 15 weeks, let's do many iterations along the way. And it included some revolutionary things, which was that you would work on a project for a week, and part of your feedback was you handed it over to someone else and you received somebody else's project and you then picked it up from there. And some of the students loved it, and some of them probably to this day still aren't real yeah, happy with what yeah. that is. But but we get too caught up in what we're doing as this most precious thing. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times it's it's the connections and sparks from other people that really create the, um, the potential for doing amazing things in the world. Yeah.
1: I think that that's really intriguing. I've never, I love that. I'm going to steal it. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to give that a try. I love the idea of sort of tossing off um, a project onto somebody else at partway. That's a really intriguing, honest to goodness, it's a really intriguing cultural and human experiment. And, you know, as an anthropologist, I love that stuff. So I, you know, my mind is also turning on, oh my gosh, imagine all the things that um, you could sort of observe from that space. Um, But the learning Learning in that moment is really powerful. We, we, we've we done, you know, small iterations of components of that. Um, one of our um, past uh, tribe members, Dr. Bruning is um, legendary for talking about the fact that with his students, you know, if you didn't document it, it didn't happen. And one of the things that he used to, when he was teaching on a regular basis in the tr- classroom, would utilize this process where uh, kids had to write an instruction manual, so they had to basically figure out how to do a thing, right, and then teach somebody else how to do a thing. But partway through, they passed it off to somebody else. So pretty, you know, intriguing the amount of learning that happens in that. So I love the concept of of the way that you're framing and thinking about that. You know, the 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 other thing that I find really interesting, Nick, is the work that you do. It's it's multifaceted. Honestly, I don't even know how you keep up with the breadth and depth of the things that you sort of have your hand in or have had your hand in over time. And um, I'm super curious as you sort of sit in 2023 right now in this moment, uh, the things that you're currently working on, what what gets you jazzed?
0: Oh, boy. Um
1: because you're doing some pretty intriguing things, but yeah. I'm super curious about the way you're thinking about them. And then I'm hoping we can circle back around to a conversation you and I had about starting something new out in the woods before we end. But I'm curious about how you're thinking about the work that you're currently involved in, because it's it's pretty intriguing and it's it's not all the same.
0: No. Um, well, uh, uh, let me hit on one brief explanation and then I'll, touch on the three things and then maybe you'll see the connection between them. But, um, you know, the essence of it is, um, I've lived much of my life in the United States. It's very much uh what are you individually achieving in the world? And I was always uncomfortable with that, whether I was in kindergarten or in grad school or anywhere along the way, I always felt like, yeah, but, I thrive when I'm working with others and it wasn't until maybe three years ago when the whole question of individualistic culture, us collectivist culture, the rest of the world um, came into my, my language and it's like, Oh yeah, that's what it is. I've always felt this power of a collective, but I've been, been raised in this community where it's all about me and not about us. And so, um, there's something then, uh, I guess, in terms of what gets me up and going is this sense that ah, I am contributing something positive to the collective. The collective is so much greater than I that that these things can happen because other people also um, aspire to them. So the, the three things that are all related to that, one is the work that we're doing around the world to help create financially self-sufficient schools. Started in Paraguay, it's been done in Tanzania. We know of other places where this is highly relevant. And it allows um, young people to be engaged in the the enterprise of their school. They're very un- entrepreneurial schools. And and the resources that come from their work and their learning in that setting fund the the cost of their education. So they fund those educators. So back to your example of a rural part of the American West. Well, what if young people were engaged in things that help fund a special program and they come out of the needs of their community? So that's one thing that we're engaged in. The other is this idea that I have that no 18 year old should go to university in particular in the United States, but instead invest the next three years of their life in serving others. And If we do that, um, young people who choose to go to university will be a little more mature. Maybe they have some funds accumulated on their behalf in that time frame. And they have a lot of clarity as to why a university education is important to them or why they want to launch an entrepreneurial career or why they want to continue in service or into the job market. But 18 is a pretty immature time for most people in particular boys. Yeah, 100%. Um,
1: I've got two of those. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> and um, so that's another thing. And that will be highly disruptive of everything else, because if we're no longer viewing K-12 education as getting people into the university, but it has these other aspirations, well, then we don't need the SAT or the ACT. We don't need all the high stakes tests that we do every April. Um, we don't need grades. Um, you know, we can make learning real and relevant from the age of five to 18 in preparation for people doing these amazing things as, as young adults. Um, so that's the second cool thing that we're engaged in. (laughs) And then the third thing is an aspiration of creating a center for sustainable living and learning where a wide range of ages, more young people, but, um, would come together on a piece of land that uh, my mother's family has. Um, and, um, and learn from the resources that are there, the meadows and the woodlands and the bogs and the creeks and the, the forests that have been infested with gypsy moth caterpillars and woolly adolids and ash borer beetles and, you know, and all of these different things. And, um, and that's the heart of your learning. And oh, by the way, people have lived in this landscape for 10,000 years. I wonder who they are. I wonder where their stories are. I wonder what new stories we could be telling to elevate their presence in this landscape, that type of thing. So I guess in answering my own question as to what's the connection is all the, all of those things are about feeling that powerful connection to each other in our mm-hmm. learning.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that the other thing that um, at least strikes me in listening to you sort of, lay out those three things is at the heart of what you're talking about, I think, is a recognition of grabbing a hold and elevating, if you will, the human element in the the crafting and controlling of one's own Journey and story, because that's the other thing I think, right? You know, that I love the, you know, at eighteen, it, you know, really we are ready to to go off to college, right? Even even my own kids did that, right? And and it's marginally successful in many ways, and I think there's a lot to that, but there's not space within the social structure of our current society that says, but we want to step back and actually allow you to figure out who you are as a human so that you can then make the next element of of your journey. And I think that that ties back in then to this idea that we don't allow students to have agency over their educational experience. So, you know, if you come back to the idea of the work that you're doing um, in places where you've got to come up with a new sustainable model for education, it's also, based on the fact that the students have a role in what that is, the design, the mm-hmm. development, the success of it, right? You're, you're really building this, this sense of autonomy and agency and it's the same thing when you think about, you know, whether or not somebody's ready to go into post-secondary and maybe the answer is they're never going to be because it's not what they want to do ultimately once they've figured out who they are and what they want their contribution to the world to be. And the same to be said for a space where multi-aged folks can come together and say, I'm going to learn by experience exploring the world around me. I'm going to deeply immerse myself in the moment and the opportunity that I have and figure out what is it that I need to know about myself as it relates to the rest of the world. Those are Mm -hmm. pretty powerful innovations, Nick.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Well, and, you know, how often do we share the message that for the majority of people anywhere in the world that we're going to put all this concentrated effort from five years old to 18 years old on becoming educated. We're going to celebrate you at various steps along the way and suggest that pretty much you're done.
1: Right. You're 18 years
0: old and you're, you're done learning stuff, you know? And, um, that's not, that's not the world, you know? I mean, we, we have to be always capable of discovering new things of showing up in curiosity and um and helping educators show up in curiosity is a key piece of that because there they are modeling day after day as an individual or as a group i don't know i wonder what that could be like how else might we discover this or who could we talk to or what other ways you know could we do this and and constantly illustrating that people at 25 years old or 55 years old or 85 years old are still curious about the world around them, um, I think can be transformational and disrupting that expectation that we're only going to, you know, pump pump a lot of things into young people in those precious 13 years and then wipe our hands and okay, we did our piece.
1: yeah it's a crazy ideology, isn't it I mean there's the the notion of being a lifelong learner gets lost in the system that we we keep coming back to over and over again it's and it's it's unfortunate because it leaves so many people out and it's not it's not serving the world right that that's my perspective it's not serving the world so
0: yeah, yeah. well just yesterday, I mean just to extend that. Commitment though, as being curious, I met a young woman here in Missoula, Montana, who has spent the um, COVID um, lockdown in Bhutan. She hadn't intended to be there that length of time, but she was one of two Americans there for three years, and she was a part of transforming the educational system in Bhutan and the the um, various. Officials said, oh, okay, well, now that you know what you want to do, we'll just implement that. And the, the king or someone else said, uh, no, um, you all are going to have to go back to secondary school, basically, and live this new model that we're creating. Um, we've, we've taken away all the other structures that have always been there, expectations of what it means uh, to be educated and how to be educated. If we're going to reframe that, you all need to live that experience. And then reimagine your own ministerial roles to reinforce what you've just experienced, rather than just um, doing things the same way you always have. So, um, her name's Susanna Poland, and I'm curious to learn more, and and now want to go to Bhutan and see see uh, how it's actually being implemented. Because that, I know it's not a large country, but that's a country that is is seeing the world differently and saying collectively we we want to see this through because we know our our um, just the power of everything in our lives will be enhanced by by reimagining this piece,
1: yeah, absolutely, and what an intriguing concept, especially. What an intriguing response, I guess, really is, is what's curious, right? From the, uh, from the government um, as it relates to that innovation. It's fascinating. Yeah, like you, I want to learn more about that. So I'll have to circle back around on that one. Um, you know, so super, super intriguing. You know, Nick, I always like to sort of wrap the conversation by recognizing that, you know, our listeners come to us from all over the world. And many of them are sitting in spaces where innovation is very difficult because of the system around them or the resources or the environment. Take your pick. There are lots of folks that, that believe that it's difficult to be creative or innovative or sort of change the, the, the set of outcomes and expectations both for ourselves and, and for our learners. So I always like to sort of close with, you know, asking the question that I I feel like the folks that are listening are asking of themselves. Well, this is really really interesting. I learned a lot from the conversation with Nick, but what can I do? What small thing can I do in my own classroom or in my own community that is going to have a meaningful impact um, on the on the people that we are supposed to be serving in this space? So, what would you what would you say to somebody? who's sitting out there sort of feeling alone in trying to do something different for kids.
0: Yeah. I would slow down and give yourself the time to have a thoughtful conversation with two other people. There's something about the dynamic of three or four people coming together. That's a little different than just finding that one other person. But suggesting that you make a meal together and and eat it together and um and have a conversation that grows from that. There's something about that's different, right, than saying let's go meet someplace and have a meal, but to say no, we're we're gonna slow things down enough that we will bring ingredients together and and then and then learn about each other as we're doing that and you're already beginning to do some foundational things of creating a team just in that in that one moment if that conversation that grows out of that leads to the most powerful learning and the observation that maybe these experiences didn't take place in school but are powerful so how do we harness that you know it's it, that simple thing i think is a great way to start because all the other things you now have a cohort to 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 lean upon and to break through that isolation that 99 percent of educators experience just finding that other ally
1: yeah finding your people we are humans after all we are social by nature tapping into that natural inclination i love that um, thank you, Nick, so much for taking time out of your day uh, to have this conversation with us. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And I can't wait um, to have more conversations um, with you over time. So thank you.
0: Well, thank you. And looking forward to seeing you soon.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin, and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.